Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. What is it about City, Liverpool and goal lines? 11mm at the Etihad in January, 29mm at Turf Moor in April and now the length of Kyle Walker's toenails in the Community Shield. And that's not including Virgil van Dijk's header that bounced onto the line from the crossbar. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon Podcast where we'll be reflecting on City's latest bit of silverware. They're like buses, aren't they? Nothing for 35 years and then all the trophies come at once. That's now the last five domestic titles that City have won and counting. Also on today's show, we'll be chatting with former City midfielder Ian Bishop to preview the Premier League opener with West Ham, and the transfer window is now closed, so we'll be looking at City's business for the summer. I'm David Mooney, and here to help me with this week's episode, I'm joined by a father and son duo. We've got Blue Moon Podcast regular Richard Burns. Hello there, David. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. And making his debut, we've got Richard's father, Tony Burns. Good evening, David. Happy to be here. How are you? How are you feeling? Make it's debut for you. I mean, not officially debut because you made an appearance on the Dadcast a few years ago. Um, some some pre-podcast nerves, um, <laughs> but I'm hoping to perform as well as uh, Phil Foden does when he steps out on the big stage. Well, we can't 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 ask for fairer than that, can we? Um, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the Community Shield is one of those games where we spend ages going, is it is it a trophy? Is it not a trophy? Then we win it and go, well, of course it's a trophy. So, I mean, what's the main thing you can take home from a game like that, Tony? Well, well, actually, I, I'm I'm going to link uh, Sunday's game to the um, Asia Trophy because the the key thing that I took out of those games but it didn't matter. <laughs> well, well in, in, on the one hand, they didn't matter at all in, in the big scheme of things. But the key thing I took out was with a mixture of players, particularly in in the Asia Trophy, and then with um, the interruption of um, Sané going off and Rodri starting, the consistency of style. We played that game, we started that game just as we finished last season. And so for me, it means the team are still on it. And also, to be fair to Liverpool, that game meant something for them as well. So I think the the battle lines are set for, for those two for the season. I was going to say, Richard, I mean, we might laugh it off as, as you know, something that is, it's the pre-season opener, the, the, the final game before the, before the season. But, I mean, Guardiola and Klopp don't, do they? No, listen, I think you had two teams on the pitch who wanted to win it. And it won't be when they finish their careers, they're not going to be thinking about that trophy as one of the proudest trophy lists that they've done. It's not going to be the game, that, the Wembley game that sticks in those players' heads the most. But on Sunday, for 90 minutes and plus the penalty shootout, every one of those players gave the best to win that game. And so for the first half, where City were the better team, you can read a little bit into that. And you know, you know I'm not... A revisionist. I've, I've said it before the Community Shield last year. I would have said it this season. It doesn't mean a lot to me. My the, what I want to see is that City are ready to start the season. Um, do you see that? Do you see that? One hundred percent. That that first half, they were exceptional at times. Absolutely exceptional against a team who last season were phenomenal and wanted to win that game. And City bested them. The second half, not so much. But what did we do? We rolled it out. We rolled out a storm against a very, very good team. If we play Liverpool, or, well, not if, when we play Liverpool at Anfield, if we want to take anything from that game, 
we're going to have to ride a storm. If we want to beat them at home again, we're going to have to ride a storm. So you can see that the team are ready to do it. In a couple of weeks, we play Tottenham. They're not, on, on the day, they're not that far short of, of Liverpool. Okay, over a season they are. But what we're seeing, City are ready to go in and play those games. Dad said it. You saw Rodri come in. Exemplary. Um, maybe not his official competitive debut, but an exemplary start in that team on a fairly big stage. Um so I was impressed. I don't. I don't particularly care that they lifted the shield at the end of it, but I do care about how they performed, and there's a lot to take from that. It was very much a first half, second half split, though, Tony, wasn't there? Yeah, it was. Um, apart, of course, from Bravo, who was consistent throughout the full game. I think. Um, I, I think. I think going back to what it meant, I think clearly something happened at half time in the Liverpool dressing room, and they came out and they absolutely wanted it. And I think for the, the dynamic for a game that is only a friendly and that I quite firmly in advance of the game almost sort of couldn't care less other than the fact that if you're in it then you want to win it but if you lose so what um, I bet think... that changed at kick off though uh, of course it did yeah. and, and it did and and as soon as City scored fantastic I was uh, cursing Sterling when he didn't pass to Walker and things like that for the second goal I was I found it um, almost Almost wonderful the fact that the the ball that didn't actually cross the line to have that again against Liverpool, <laughs> fantastic. But I think um, I, I think it just demonstrated there was a similarity to previous games against Liverpool, the um, ebb and flow of the game. And I think what Richard said, I think it's going to be like that next season, and we'll have to weather that. Two good teams, and for a pre-season game. Fabulous performance, really. Well, you mentioned Raheem Sterling. Broke his duck against Liverpool. He's, he, he, it feels like he needed that. Oh, I, massive. Because, actually, um, to have gone another game and not done that, it was becoming... Sterling plays against Liverpool. He doesn't score. So, albeit um, a friendly game, I think that was... There's a real biggie for City and a biggie for Sterling. So, yeah, really pleased. But then again, Richard, how did he not <coughs> score the second one? Well, he got... Um, he got caught in two minds, didn't he? And it's what really frustrates me when Sterling does that is it's pretty rare that he does that now, but you know that when he does this, still those people are going to think, oh, typical Sterling, despite the fact that he's become central to arguably um, the best the best club side in Europe um, and certainly the best team in England. He, he buries that most of the time now, um, or he's, he's very, very clinical. In that one moment, of course, against Liverpool, where he could have pretty much wrapped up the game, he gets, I don't know whether it's because he got a shout from Walker and it confused him, and then he did sort of think about it and scuffed it a little bit. It was just really unfortunate, but I'm glad it came after he'd scored, because as sort of Dad's just said, if... It, if he misses that without having broken his duck against Liverpool, then it just There's becomes... There's more weight, isn't there? Yeah, it just becomes another miss in the pantheon of Sterling misses against Liverpool. But now it's, well, OK, you've scored, so you know you can do it. The the, the duck is broken. Um, but it wasn't... Fair to say it wasn't his finest moment. I feel really sorry for him, though, because I think he's he's gone clean through there. He's got so much time, and he's looked up. He's heard the shout from Walker. He's looked up and thought, well, Walker's obviously the pass. And then when he's gone to play it, Van Dijk's got himself in a mm. great position, and he's had second thoughts and thought, I can't pass it now. Too late, Alisson's on top of him. So it's it's one of them where you think, actually, if he didn't have the time to think about it, he'd, he'd have probably just stroked it in the in the bottom corner. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think as he looks up, he, he definitely has a shout from Walker. I think he sees the red shirt in the corner of his eye. And I think, not looking to, to particularly uh, dig him out of a hole on this one, but when you watch the replay back, it does look to me like if he, he takes a little um, knock in, the, in his, his foot into the, the ground, which maybe just... Just, just, uh, just under hits it. Just a little, yeah. yeah. 
But uh, like Richard said, um, the fact that he got the first one lets that one go, really. Now, we're talking on this week's Patreon show about penalties after that penalty shootout win. It was Claudio Bravo who uh, who had the decisive moment in the shootout with that save. Um, but, I mean, all the way through the game, it wasn't the Claudio Bravo we knew from 2016, was it? No. Um, not only did he play well, he looked confident and knew that he was going to play well. And I think... Um, the, the, the players looked confident with him. And some of the... Uh, there was a couple of moments in the game where, with, with the, the, the passing, I thought, no, no. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. You're not Edison. <laughs> but actually, he, he was great. He got it right. Uh, and, and for me, to be honest, I'd have given him man of the match. Well, I was going to come on to this because De Bruyne got it, but I was going to say, surely there has to be a case for, for Bravo, Richard. Yeah, I, I, he would have got my award as well. I think he was... He was beyond good and he was beyond good for Bravo, he put in a very, very solid performance. Um, he had plenty to do because, I mean, Salah, okay, not all of his, some of his shooting was a little bit wayward. Um, but that goal was peppered at times um, and he made one particularly good save low down to his left that you, you couldn't have faulted him had it got past him. Um, he just looked to... He looked at a very assured presence and you, you strip away what we know about Bravo's history and if you just take that one game, which is fair to do now, it's his return after an injury, you take that one game and think, how will those defenders in front of him feel with that keeper behind him, behind them? And you've got to think they'd feel pretty confident. Okay, maybe There's, There'll be a lot of City fans, though, saying, well, you know what, a, a stop clock is right twice a day. Absolutely. So, I, and, and, I mean, at, at this stage, he's had one one great game. Listen, I'm not trying to say that suddenly we've got somebody who's, who's going to be duking it out with Edison for number one all season. What I'm saying is if you put him into the next game, you'd feel a lot more confident on that performance and the defenders will as well, because something like that, it, it grows on evidence, doesn't it? And the evidence now is that... We've got a Bravo back who's confident. Maybe, maybe the year out will have done him good. Maybe he's, he's detached some of those negative memories and, and got rid of some of that lack of confidence that, that probably followed him onto the pitch every game. I'm not saying we've suddenly got World Keeper of the Year and give him a 10-year contract. But we've on that performance, we've got a, a better number two than maybe we thought we had. And hopefully it stays that way. A, a decent cup keeper. Well, let's say in the, at this stage, if, if Edison picks up an injury that's uh, six weeks, eight weeks out, are you, are you that concerned? As, as Are you as concerned as you would have been last season? No, definitely not. I mean, I, th- I think you're right, to, you're right, but harsh to mention the stop <laughs> clock being right twice a day. But a couple of things from that game. First of all, that, that he's been out for a year. And um, although Salah wasn't really on it quite as he, as he often is, nevertheless, to, to have to face down a prolific striker coming at you on a number of occasions and to be in the right position uh, is one thing. And there was, a, I can't remember who it was, but it was in the second half where he had to make a decision to come out. Oh, and, yeah. he, and he charged out towards the edge of the 18-yard box. Claudio, I, think it, I think it was like the 92nd minute. Something yeah. like that. Claudio, and and, and what his decision-making was right. Claudio Bravo, 18 months, two years ago, would have got that decision wrong. Fair enough. Uh, could he have done better on the goal? Um, I <sighs> basically the question is, could he have come for the cross? I yeah, he could have done. I mean, you watch it in real time; it all moves pretty fast. And when you've got the benefit of ten replays and, and every angle, maybe it looks a little bit different. I would be inclined to say that you want your goalkeeper being decisive there, and I would rather concede the goal for him getting beaten to it. In in that instance, obviously, this isn't like a, ca- a a golden rule, but in that instance, throw yourself at it because. The odds when you're on your line in that 
position like the goal's massive to the to the, um it's to, to Matip in that position so I would say play the odds narrow the goal if you throw yourself at it you pr- maybe you get something on it um I wouldn't be overly critical the goal wasn't his fault but I would say on balance of probability of stopping it split second go at it yeah, whilst I'm not becoming the um, Claudio Bravo fan club manager, <laughs> I think by way of mitigation, I mean, yes, maybe he could have come for it, but how many people expected Van Dyke to put such a delicious chip back in? Uh, I mean, that was exquisite, that ball that he played back in, and it actually left it open for a number of Liverpool players. So in all fairness to Bravo, maybe, but actually, it was exquisite from Van Dyke. There was also Otamendi chasing back desperately and fouling his man in the middle. So, uh, so there's more more going on there than meets the eye. Yeah. Um, we mentioned at the top of the show, and Tony, you touched on it as well. Kyle Walker. Um, I mean, we have to we have to talk about that goal line clearance because I think, other than Stephen Jordan at Old Trafford, it's the single greatest goal line clearance I've ever seen. I I thought um, in the moment when it happened, I thought it was, I thought it was glorious. It's the sort of moment that I can watch forever in, in a replay in super slow motion, as good as some of the goals, is athleticism to, to, to chase back the distance and then to sort of step with his, his right foot and then go up with his left. It's fabulous. The timing and the athleticism is fantastic. I can't watch that sort of stuff enough. The fact it, it was like a double off the line against Liverpool, perfect. And I mean, I just know if I'd done it, I'd have just rifled it into the roof of my own net. You know what well, I mean? Well, that's the, the, the fact that he gets a good clearance on it as well. He's not just scrambled back and just kept it off the line. He's booted it out of play. It was, um, it, You can't really train for something like that. Obviously, you keep your fitness up, but I imagine there's not too many instances where the de- defensive coach is lobbing the ball back at the goal line to see if you can make it Go on, it chase back. that. <laughs> yeah, and it's just... An absolute moment of instinct of his reading of the game to spot what was happening and to keep running. The speed to make it to the ball, because I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it's pretty hard to outrun a ball that's moving at pace. And he, um, yeah, it's, it's just just absolutely but, sensational. I, I wonder if he had some advance notice about the uh, the new signing coming from Juventus and thought he had to make a bit of a <laughs> shot. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Who, who knows? I mean, I, the, other, the other thing I wanted to mention, and Richard, you've... you've Absolutely torpedoed this one, but we'll uh, we'll go anyway. Uh, Guardiola is the first manager in England to be shown a yellow card. Uh, although now it's not going to go down in record. Yeah. You just told me it's officially a friendly. Yeah, the FA. I mean, goal goal scorer stats don't count. Sterling doesn't have his first official goal of the season. I don't know if any managers in England got yellow cards in any other friendlies. Um, it would be it a nice stat to have in a weird way. A bit of a bit of history made. Um, but I'm I'm pretty sure now the FA have confirmed it as officially a friendly that um that, that it won't it, yeah. it won't actually count as that but that said um City will still count it on their honours list lifting the shield <laughs> won't they so where do you draw the line yeah <laughs> well uh, just a word on the yellow card for managers I was reading up on this four yellow cards for a manager is a touchline ban Guardiola is quite an emotional fella <laughs> yes he is that uh he might he, well he might be in a race to be the first to get that ban <laughs> is, is that one of the new rules yes Oh, well, I, I would say he'll be getting a touchline ban. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should. Feels nailed on, doesn't it? Yeah, right. definitely, yeah. 
you obviously like your City coverage to be in-depth, but if you want it in the written form rather than on the podcast, you could check out The Athletic for the best coverage of Manchester City from a world-class team of writers. It's completely ad-free, there's no annoying pop-ups, nothing like that. Head over to theathletic.co.uk forward slash blue moon and you can sign up with 50% off your yearly subscription and get a 30-day free trial. And there's a familiar face there as well with Sam Lee, who's often on the podcast. He's providing their City material. I was reading his look ahead to the season earlier about how Guardiola is aiming for another 100-point season and about how European success is now key for City, according to some of the players. Sam says that this season could be as good as any for that because City proved that they can now avoid complacency. There's also an interesting piece he's done with Michael Cox about how City's defence was what won them the league last season despite all of the goals that they scored. It explains how Guardiola has changed his defensive systems from previous clubs to get something that works in the Premier League. So if that's the sort of stuff you like, head over to theathletic.co.uk forward slash blue moon to receive 50% off your yearly subscription and a 30-day free trial. Welcome to the new home of football writing. Right, so the transfer window's now closed and a lot of money has been spent for the summer with Manchester City doing some of the spending of it. That hasn't gone down well in some quarters. I've been looking at the criticism that's been aimed at Pep Guardiola and Cheeky Bagaristein for opening the checkbook once more. The minute you walked in the joint... The fuss started when Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp admitted that he probably wouldn't be splashing the cash in the close season. Football journalist Dan Burke explains what he said. Klopp was speaking in an interview with some journalists uh, just before Liverpool's pre-season friendly against Napoli at the end of July. Um, he was talking about how uh, Liverpool's lack of transfer activity this summer, basically saying that Liverpool don't live in a fantasy land, unlike some clubs. Uh, one of the clubs he mentioned was Manchester City. Um, he was also talking about the likes of Barcelona, PSG, Uh, Real Madrid, I believe it was as well. The manager said that, ultimately, he wasn't able to spend big. He said, uh, you know, we have to pay bills, everybody has to pay bills. Uh, He also said, uh, people will say, we'll take it that I'm jealous. I'm not at all jealous. There is no guarantee that we won't draw with Leicester on the snowy pitch because we make five new signings. It's another change of heart from Klopp, who had originally been critical of heavy spending when he first took charge at Anfield. He'd originally said he wanted to do things without paying the big bucks back in 2016. But here's how he responded when that comment was put to him after bringing in Virgil van Dijk and Alisson for record fees for their positions. 100 million was kind of a crazy number of, of money. So, But since then, the world obviously changed completely. And I'm sure in this moment we signed uh, the most expensive goalkeeper, Bamba Bam and all that stuff. There will be a few nice little transfers in this window still. We are, we are only pretty early, and, but it will happen a lot. And um, yes, it's first and foremost my responsibility is to, for this club to be as successful as possible. He was criticised by then Manchester United manager Jose Mourinho that summer and continued a tit-for-tat battle through press conferences. It's not about my, to, to, to push through my thoughts about that and say, no, I don't want to buy players and I don't want to pay big money and stuff like that. In the end, Liverpool FC is not successful. That doesn't work. We have a really good team. We have a really good squad. And to improve a squad like this is expensive because we find better players than we already have. So they are not waiting around the corner. He explained how the owners at Liverpool were backing him in the transfer market. In the moment when we are convinced about it, then our ownership, thank God, is, is uh, believes that much in the project that they say, OK, and let's do it, and let's do it. That's, uh, and I really think that there's a, so far it is a really, a really good year for us because we, how said, very good squad, pretty successful last year, played 
piece of wonderful football last year, so and then still we needed to replace players. Klopp added that good players are expensive, and he was now prepared to pay for them. You cannot ask for a free transfer, that so we don't care what the world around is thinking. Like Man United didn't care what I had to say about it, so it's only an opinion in that moment. And, and did I change my opinion? Yes, that's true, but it's better to change opinion than never to have one. Let's be absolutely clear here. There's nothing wrong with Klopp's position, nor is there anything wrong with him changing his mind on how he wants to operate as a manager. City fans will tell you how expensive it can be to assemble a world-class squad, and that's exactly what Liverpool have done, and exactly what they've got these days. But this summer, Klopp's opened up a mini-war of words with Pep Guardiola, who took the fantasy land comments badly. If you bother me, of course you bother me. Because it's not true, we have spent 200 million every transfer market. That is not true. So it's Liverpool, you never walk alone. So it's not a small team, it's Liverpool. So of course I don't like it because it's not true. Because last season we spent 17, one seven, in just one player. That's the City boss speaking ahead of the Community Shield last Sunday. That 17 million is what City spent last season after the money they made from player sales was taken into account. So when I said two seasons ago when I spent a lot is because I took over the team, like uh, again, 10, 11 players more than 30 years, you have to do it. But we cannot spend 200 uh, millions every season. Like for example, Liverpool has spent more than 200 millions last season, they cannot do it this season. At that point, City had brought in Rodri and Angelino, and Guardiola was quick to point out that the days of bringing in whole batches of summer signings were over at the Etihad, with only fine-tuning being made to the squad. In essence, he was suggesting that City and Liverpool are actually in a very similar situation. We bought one player this season and Angelino, we make a payback clause, so come back with us and that is a reality. So today the clubs cannot spend every single season a lot, a lot of money. And at the point what happened Barcelona Madrid to the other clubs, I don't know because I am not there about the monies, about they can spend. If you think they can do it, it's because they can do it. I don't know, that's why the financial fair play, when something is wrong, the clubs is not correct, will be punished. But also, I'm not in the comments for the other managers or other colleagues because they say what they want to say. Only I can say that is not true. There's no getting away from the fact that City have spent a lot of money once again. It'll always rub some people up the wrong way when the likes of Berry and Bolton, just 20 miles up the road, are struggling so desperately to pay debts in the region of £5 million. If that was the criticism, then there'd not really be much pushback against it. But when it's coming from one of the teams with a similar spending power to Guardiola's side, then it's a bit rich indeed. Hi, this is David Bernstein, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. So then a look there at the money that's been spent this summer. Um, I, first off, uh, let's go through some of the signings that City have made in the uh, in the transfer window. Angelino Richard, uh, that was a bit of a, a, a one out of nowhere, really. Yeah, a bit of a curveball, wasn't it? Um... I think it makes sense with the Mendy issues, um, you know, his, his injuries, he can't be relied upon. Um, I think it makes sense to have more cover there. I think we are starting a season not just by virtue of Mendy's injury, we are starting a season where Alexander Zinchenko is now our first choice left back. And, and by rights, he's been 
absolutely sensational there. Um, his commitment and dedication to that role is extraordinary for somebody who that is not his natural position. But now, would you ever see him playing as a midfielder for City? He is, he is a left back. Um, it makes sense to have further cover. Um, Angelino, from I'm, I'm not going to claim to be the expert in him or to have seen loads of him since he left City. I think he's probably more naturally, well, no, not probably, he is more naturally attacking than Zinchenko. Um, and you wonder tactically what that might hint at if he if he can prove himself worthy of a first-team spot. You've got to think for bringing him back, he's got a chance of playing some first-team games. Um I think it, it puts Mendy in a very interesting situation because I don't think Angelino would have interrupted his career as now. He is a first-team player now. I don't think he'd have come back on the expectation of not playing at all. So when Mendy's fit, realistically, we've got three left-backs. Well, I was going to say this. Tony, what does it mean for Mendy? Because, I mean, surely his time... You've got to be asking the question. He's, I mean, he's had two seasons of, of injuries, and to, to an extent, that's not his fault. He can't help that. But... To another extent, City need left-backs. They need the left-back to be available. Well, well they do, but um, I think what Richard said is on what basis do you not give Sinchenko the shout? I mean, there's a fella who um, last, at the start of, at the end of last season, he was on his way out. And, and he decided he'd stay and fight for his place. And not only did, did he stay and fight for his place, he's absolutely been spot on. So I don't know on what basis Mendy, he certainly doesn't walk back in. Um, is that because of the knee, though? <laughs> uh, well, well, possibly, <laughs> but but then when I mean, assuming he comes back at some some stage fit, um, is he going to sit around without game time? I don't know. And but there again, if we're going at it on all um, all fronts, then maybe maybe they'll they'll take the rotation. But I don't know at the moment where Mendy where he plays. How about Rodri? Though Rodri was confirmed just after Angelino. Uh, what have you made of his of his start so far? Well, I, I thought um, t- two things really. His first half at Wembley, I thought he looked decent. I thought he he, he looked well. Um, and the second thing, he, he looks a big guy. Um, so I, I wait to see his physical presence when I actually see him. I, I, I don't I don't know what he was like um, at event at, was it, where, Athletic. at Atletico. So I, I can't say oh he's going to bring this or he's going to bring that to the Premiership. But any player coming into the Premiership is going to have some period of adjustment. Uh, I'm sure Pep will, will do that properly as as you'd expect. But on the first first looks, he looks a powerful uh, powerful player, and he's going to make us better. I would R- say, Richard. The, the talk is that he'll play in the centre of midfield, and Fernandinho will be used often as a centre back when needed to be. I, I, is that something you're comfortable with at this stage? Yeah. Um, it is. I think we've been crying out for at least two years for effective cover for Fernandinho. Um, we've never really had it. Fernando was, you know, is one of the players that we we bought to sort of do that role, and he was never really up to it. Um, Gundogan has a fantastic player, but he isn't that player like maybe um, we, we thought he might be. He's a, a bit more of a jack of all trades, and I'd probably prefer him in an attacking position. Although he. He can play deep. That's not to denigrate what he does there. Um, but clearly we needed a long-term solution. We've got a young lad, spent a lot of money on him. Um, he looks like the perfect pet midfielder already. Um, if he can walk onto the Wembley pitch for his debut and play like that against Liverpool, um, even if the first half was better than the second, if he can do it for 45 against that Liverpool team who are notoriously try and be pretty intense and sort of attack those areas really well. Um, 
then that's a lot of promise. I've got to say as well, I thought there was a really, um, if I was being harsh, I might say surprisingly sharp bit of analysis from the uh, the TV commentary when they were talking the first half about when he was off the ball, the way he was, just his body shape, so that he was always facing play. He always that that field of vision. Um, he, he was never taking the ball with his back to play. He always made sure he was back to goal. And that, I think, that's a really key thing because Dad's right, there will be a period of adjustment. But if that's his style of play already where he's always looking outwards, Pep's only going to, Pep's going to make the most of that. That's going to suit City down to the ground. And just, yeah, just that, that awareness of what's going on around him. Um, I think, it's really, really promising. And just for Fernandinho at centre-back, I have no concerns with that. The guy reads the game exceptionally. I think the abilities that he has, Pep, Pep centre-backs are almost interchangeable with midfielders anyway. It's always been the case. And if we get a sort of Mascherano situation going on, um, he's done it before. He's played there before, certainly in Pep's first season. We tried that a few times. I think at Watford, I've, actually. Yeah, I, I, I have no concerns with Fernandinho playing there. I'm not saying he'd be my first choice. But, but I have no concern with it. There was there was also an observation um, by the commentator about Rodri saying something something along the lines of that he's not always the most eye catching player, and I, and I think that's ideal because how many times have you watched Fernandinho and almost you've almost not noticed him and yet he's been absolutely pivotal to the game. Gareth but, Barry. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, in, in, yeah, it's and, that and, role, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Fabian Delph has moved on to Everton, Tony. Uh, it felt like the right time, didn't it? Uh, definitely the right time. It, it, it peaked a short while ago. Uh, I hope he, I hope he has a a, a good um, a good time at Everton. I think he'll be a good player for them. He made his contribution the season before last. He, he, he I mean, he actually, I think he surprised most of us. But then, absolutely, um, he's not getting in that team anymore. No, and, and as, he, you know he was getting in at left back, and like we said, they've signed Angelino, Zinchenko's there, Mendes to come yeah. back. He's not getting back in. Is no, he? He, no, he was way down, way down. Yeah, uh, Richard, what what do you make of the of the swap deal? Didn't allow out uh, Jack Canseo in. Is say his surname again? I said Canseo. Oh, okay, that's you surprised then. I I've been reading it as Cancelo, but I'm happy to. I have no idea. I was guessing and just went for it. I'm, no, I'm will. I'm, I'm going to lie. I'm willing to trust you. I'm and. Sorry. I'm, I'm guessing. Sorry to bring controversy to the studio. I'll tell you what, tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast. If you know how to pronounce it, send us a little voice note of some kind, or, or film yourself saying it so that we we know how to say it in future shows. <laughs> um, I think from again, I, I'm not. I'm always wary of saying this with transfers from uh, European leagues. Can't claim to be the expert on him, but everything that we read about him, the little clips that you see doing the rounds at the moment, it's a very promising signing. Um, I think what it means is it's not necessarily. It's probably more pressure on Walker. So last season we saw, I think Danilo used to bring Walker back into form when Walker had that pretty significant dip around uh, around the middle of the season. Um, Danilo came in, did fine, didn't really do anything wrong at that point, but it was used that once Walker was back and in something close to his best form, he was always way ahead of Danilo. Um, Danilo was dropped in some ways a little bit unlucky that he was a second choice right back at Real Madrid. He came to City, he wasn't the right back City wanted to sign, he was there because they had to move on from Dani Alves. Um, to be of a level where the clubs that you can go from are from Real Madrid to Manchester City under Guardiola and still not play that much football, he's really a victim of circumstance because he's a good player, he's a, he's a very talented player. But he's, he's just never troubling the City first team on a normal day. Um, he will go as somebody, you know, he, he's won two Premier League titles here. He's won two League Cups. So 
Um, a record that he'll be pretty happy with. But I, I hope he goes somewhere now. Well, we know where he's gone. I hope <laughs> I hope he goes there and gets plenty of football. I hope he wins a few trophies that he, he'll out with a contribution that he can be really happy with. Because coming in as a £25 million player, when that was actually still a lot for a fullback, um, he could reasonably have... Ex- Remember those days. <laughs> yeah, genuinely. Uh, he could reasonably have expected to play more football. And you've never heard... Never heard a moan from him. Um, he's been fully part of that squad, and you get the feeling from, you know, all the. It doesn't seem disingenuous anyway. The players wishing him well, and Bernardo Silva tweeting about how much he's going to miss him. All seems pretty straight up, and um, you know, take it at face value. He's been he's been part of some very special times at City. He's not going to be the name you think of most when we look back at it in twenty years, but he's been there for it. So good luck to him for the new signing. Exciting to see if it pushes Walker onto a better level. Great if they can vie with each other. If it gives us tactical options to go three at the back and play two wing backs, fantastic. I'm excited by it. The big story of the transfer window has been Leroy Sane. Uh, Tony, we've had no news yet. Um, the, the the bad news for City is that he could still go. The transfer window here is closed, but not in Germany. Well, the thing is, I suppose that you never like to see a player get injured. Um, but if the injury picked up at weekend is enough to um, halt the transfer and then um, he makes a recovery where he can contribute first later in the season, then no bad thing. Um, Are you a bit nervous about it, though? Because it, it feels very much like he's like he wants to get out of, get out of the club. And I mean, I'm not saying that in a, in a nasty way because it feels like he's open to staying as well. But it, it like... It's almost like he's like he's going. Well, I, I want to go home. Well, and and, and you know, I I can I, he does. I agree, but I can understand that given his lack of game time. But I'd like to think that he's professional enough to continue to give everything. Um, and I can't I can't see why why he wouldn't. Would you be worried that I mean, if if he does go before the German transfer deadline passes, that City haven't got the opportunity to to use that money and get a replacement? Because I mean, the deadline's gone here. Um, to be honest, not overly concerned. Uh, just because when you look at the depth of the squad, players that uh, are coming through, I think um, I think there's enough there to uh, enough there in the squad and enough with Pep to maximise every player in every position. So not overly worried. Concerned, more concerned that we're just losing. If we were to lose, Sane, that that's what concerned me more. Richard Pep is a, a, a notorious problem solver. Um, if he's not got Sane, you you feel confident he would solve that problem somehow. Yeah, um, I mean somehow in the sense that City have also got Mares. You know the two silvers, they've <laughs> the Sterling. There's there's so many options there. Listen, we're not going to be sat here in a couple of podcast time when if and when Sane has gone. You know if that comes to pass, we're not going to be sit, sitting here with you saying. City look a bit short on options now, don't they? And expecting <laughs> us to try and recover that one or resolve that one, it's not going to happen. The The thing is that there's nobody, and not just in City squad, in, in world football, there are not many players who offer quite what Sané does, that that absolute sort of 0-100 to explosive pace. Um, you know, Sterling doesn't quite do that. Bernardo Silva doesn't quite do that. De Bruyne, De Bruyne maybe has a touch of that, but it's not the same type of player. Um, and, and certainly for the qualities that I do think he has, the most obvious replacement and, and beneficiary of Sané going is Mares, and Mares doesn't have that. Now Mares can turn a game with a bit of magic, but it's just it's not quite the same thing. If you're thinking, um, let's assume that Sané, if he were to stay, would be a key part of the team this season. 
there's still going to be games that he starts on the bench because we rotate like that. If you're a tired right back in a tight game and Leroy Sané comes on with 10 minutes to go, he's also a fantastic option off the bench in a way that maybe other players aren't. Um, so we would be losing something. I do not question Guardiola's ability to solve that problem, to work tactically with what City have got and, and make us not miss Sané. But just from a pure excitement of of watching him come onto the pitch when you need something to turn in your favour, or watching him rinse defenders when you're already five nil up and just being cruel about it, that's that's something I'll miss from the stands. The team will still get over ninety points, where so I think we'll win the league. But I'd rather have him as part of it than not. Yeah, and and also just in terms of uh, okay, we'll miss Sane and 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 so on. But in terms of three players who are there who contributed last season, but will almost be like new players this season. Mares is going to come back a different player. Uh, we're going to see De Bruyne, hopefully, um, we're injury-free, and look how long we missed him for last season. And Phil Foden is going to feature more. So we, we're not short of options. And that's apart from, God knows, whoever else is coming through. So I'm not overly concerned. Disappointed, but overly concerned. Got instinct. Is he a City player in September? Uh, no. Richard? Unfortunately not, no. Now then, moving on, and to preview the game with West Ham, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by former City and West Ham midfielder Ian Bishop. Ian, um, I mean, first off, how much have things changed between uh, between these two sides from when you were there? Massively, mate, isn't it? Um, you know, when, when things started turning for City, I couldn't be any happier. You know, I've always had a great affiliation with the supporters, uh, and to think, you know, that... that barren period that that the club had for that spell and and dropping down into the the third tier of English football, mate. I, I couldn't have been happier for things to turn round, and I only wished the best for West Ham at the time, and it seems to have come, but a little bit slower than than it did at City, you know. Now, Richard, as a as an opening game for for City fans, what what do, what what's this one like as a, a as a pick? I think it's um it's quite a good one. I think sometimes. You want to be wary almost of getting drawn against the um, one of the the really lower teams because it can feel a bit of a a bit of a shrug of the shoulders if you without being arrogant if you feel that it's a game that you're just going to sort of walk it can almost be an anticlimactic start to the season. Um, I'd rather be starting at home, I'll be honest. Um, but I think the West Ham playing West Ham, we know the kind of football that they're going to uh, going to try and play. Um, they're a, at the best. They're an entertaining team to watch. They've got some very good individuals, and I think they are. They're not likely to just try and sit back against City. And if there's ever, if there's any game in the season where you've got half a chance of springing a surprise, the opening day when players are maybe not at full fitness or they're coming back from pre-season. Um, so I think it makes it an entertaining game. Now, obviously, some of that also makes it a slightly nerve-wracking one because you can't go into it overly confident of the win but in all honesty I'd rather have that keeping us on our toes than maybe playing to pluck a name out the air of a team that I'd expect us to beat Brighton for example I'd rather be um, I think I'd rather be starting in West Ham it's a it's a good way to get into the season Ian what's what's Pellegrini been like at West Ham because obviously City fans know him from his time at City Uh, what's he what's he been doing there well you know what I think they like him there I was I was there at the last game of the season the last home game which which they finished on a high note they won 3-0 um, I haven't heard a bad word said about him. To be fair, you know they they see him as a as a gentleman. Um, they they gave him a bit of time. He he, he sort of went up and down really. Uh, his issue was probably the Arnautovic thing in January. I think that put a little stumbling block on it. You know, um, 
now that they've got rid of him, that was the best thing they could have done. You don't really need that poison in your, in your dressing room. And uh, I think it, it was typical West Ham, and the, the West Ham fans will tell you it's the same year in, year out. They can perform against the top sides and then struggle maybe against against the lesser teams. You know what I mean? When you're saying about first games of the season, I'm sure when the fixture list went out, West Ham didn't feel the way City felt about about the first game. You know, and I think the the fixture list have been fairly kind to City. If you look at it, I think even Tottenham in the second game, that's going to be one of them where if you can take the scalp of a supposed top six team early doors, it's going to it's going to fill you full of confidence. Not that this manager or this team needs it. Tony, just looking at, at, at the fixtures as well, and, and obviously with, uh, with with City just having that, had that game against Liverpool in the Community Shield, do you see much of a of a change from from that game at Wembley in terms of lineup? No, probably not. I mean, there's uh, obviously with um, the players who came back late from the tournaments, Fernandinho, uh, Aguero, maybe, maybe Quinn's the game. But you know, looking at the fixture and the sort of things Richard said, it's probably quite an ideal game for the team that's stepped up. Uh, at weekend, whether or not Aguero starts, whether or not Fernandino starts, I personally think Fernandino may well start, but I think it's a great game. I think um, De Bruyne's looking in fabulous form. Uh, Silva was up there, and actually, what a good game for um, Rodri to start um, because he had a, he certainly had a good first half at weekend, and I think uh, big stadium, big pitch at West Ham. I think it's pretty ideal and, and a good game for West Ham as well because they will they will want to go for it. I was going to say, Ian, in terms of, of style of play, um, West Ham aren't going to sit back in this game, surely? No, not at all. I, I mean, I mean, I've seen, if I remember rightly, you know, uh, the, the way they sort of finished, I remember Man United, they, they outplayed Man United at Old Trafford and, I mean, it wasn't such a big deal last season, to be fair, but, um, you, you know, it, it depicted to me how Pellegrini wants his, his team to look and, and how he wants them to play, you know? We all we all have the insight on him and 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 know his tactics really and um, he will have them going out and he has got them back to what the old West Ham used to be, you know, a, a good football inside. Now, one thing I did want to ask you, Ian, is um, obviously, you know, with with the greatest of respect, none of us in the studio quite made it to your level in terms of uh, professional uh, football playing. Uh, what's what's pre-season actually like? Because we've we've talked a lot recently about has it been beneficial for City to be going off to to the uh, to East Asia and then coming back and 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 going straight into a Premier League campaign. Um, what what's what's pre-season training like as a player? I wouldn't. I mean, it's obviously changed quite a bit. Um, you know, and you could go through your pre-season winning every game, start the first first uh, Premier League game and end up getting beat. It's just it was never predictable, you know. Nobody's at their sharpest till about four or five games in. The pre-season games don't get you Premier League ready at all. Um, you do need the break. A lot of players don't want the break anymore. A lot of players want to get back and get playing and have that buzz going again. Um you do need it, but you can never get to your match fitness until maybe four or five games in. You know, the, the pre-season games don't get that for you. It's a long opener more than anything. Um, the size of the squads these days, and back then we were, we were playing every pre-season game, maybe 90 minutes of every pre-season game. That did get you a little bit fitter and sharper, to be honest with you. But now with the squad rotation and, and as you say, all these tournaments through the summer, players coming back late, it's going to take... A little while, a good few weeks for people to get back to their sharpest, you know. I mean, I did, 
I did get a little bit concerned at the weekend. I, I figured we let Liverpool back in it in the last 20 minutes. But overall, mate, you, you couldn't ask for a better start, could you? Uh, they, they've come out after the pre-season break, after all the, the travelling and what have you, and they've gone and picked up the first piece of silverware. You can't complain. Richard, there was a spell in... I think West Ham's first season at the Olympic Stadium uh, where City had scored more first half goals than West Ham did at, at that ground just by virtue of the FA Cup game and the league game. Yeah. Um, City are quite good there. We've been phenomenal there and I think even even in this last two seasons where we've racked up plenty of big scores at home and on the road, the... Um, the size and regularity of the, the the big wins against West Ham still, I mean, I don't have the stats in front of it, but it still strikes me as an anomaly. I think, is it 17 goals we've scored there? With, Something like that, yeah. With one in return, and, and last season, I think, off the top of my head, was it 3-1, which was closer than the, the fives and the fours that we've had there previously, but um, I think even that was, it didn't quite reflect the balance of play. Um, I think City have just there's there's something about that stadium. I think, and again, you know, I'm sure Ian will be able to account for this better than I can. But I think for a professional player or a, a professional team, once you get it in your head that one game is going to be particularly easy or one game is going to be particularly hard in your season, that must feed into your psychology before. It. I remember, for example, Sean Gotter always used to bag a hat trick against Burnley. Like you knew before the game, he was on for a brace or a hat trick because it was his lucky team. Suarez, you always used to do it against Norwich. Just got like three hat tricks in three games against them or something stupid. I think sometimes teams just know. And City, obviously, it's going to break at some point. I think City go to the London Stadium probably with an extra spring in the step because they will have all the memories of all the goals that they bang in there. And hopefully, fingers crossed, Saturday's a repeat. Football's a funny thing, a funny game, isn't it? You know, it's. Um, I think the biggest difference will be that there'll be a familiar familiarity about about the city lineup. You know. Um, it's the clubs at a stage now where, where they can make big signings and don't necessarily have to start them, you know. They'll break them in a little bit. Where West Ham, it's coming, it's going through a change right now, but, but if they've made big money signings, they're going to have to start. So there'll be a little bit of, you know, the, the newness of, of people trying to fit together, get to know each other's game. I don't think pre-season's been sort of long enough for that to happen. Now, uh, final question before we get some predictions, Tony. I want to I want you to be absolutely honest with me here. Now it's the first game of the season. We're obviously we're billing City and Liverpool to be going for it for the the title again. Are you going to have half an eye on Liverpool's results this early in the season? I'll, I'll be watching uh, Liverpool on Friday evening um, with the absolute hope for uh, a Norwich win, but the absolute expectation that it'll be a, a, a sound Liverpool win. Yeah, I'll be I'll be watching Liverpool closely. Because I can't see beyond City and Liverpool, and I think uh, the the weekend's game was a, a fabulous example of two teams ready to start the season, ready to go for it. Now then, we've had uh, no winners on the charity bet for the season so far. I mean, we have only had one game, so we're still to get off the mark. We're working with William Hill to raise money for the Christia Cancer Hospital in Manchester. Over the last three years, our predictions have pulled in almost three and a half grand. So let's see if we can't get off the mark for this season for with uh, the game at West Ham. Ian, I'm going to give you my prediction because I was notoriously rubbish last season. Uh, so what score do you think it's going to be? What score do I think it's going to be? I can only see a City win. Like I said, they'll have a familiarity about them. You know, it'll be the team more or less that that finish the season. I think um, maybe bought one or two, but I I can see a three-one win. I can see a repeat. I can see a three-one win. 
Well, Ian, if you're right, 3-1 is 9-1 to one with William Hill, which means you'd add £90 to the pot. Uh, Richard, what's, uh, what's your scoreline? Uh, I am confident, um, possibly overconfident, to be honest, uh, but for the sake of trying to pull a bit of money in, I'm going to say to start the season with a 4-0 away win. If that comes off, it's 10-1 to one and £100. Tony, what are you having? Uh, confident of a City win, and I expect uh, a comfortable 3-0 victory. Well, if you're right with 3-0, that is 13-2 and £65 if you're right. Remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on responsible gambling, head over to begambleaware.org. Ian, thank you very much for uh, for being on the show today. You're welcome, mate. It's always a pleasure to oh, see you, Dave. Thanks, fellas. Hope you enjoy the game if you can, because I, I know you split between it. Mate, it's 7.30 in the morning. Oh, we're going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the season is here again, and for us in the studio, following City up and down the country is one thing, but the sport is now more global than it's ever been. You've just heard from Ian Bishop there that it's 7.30 in the morning for him at West Ham. City are a big name in all four corners of the world. Here's what some City fans go through each week just to get to watch the match. I'm Amin from Malaysia. The most ridiculous time to watch City play would be the weekday matches because it would start at 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. and ends at 6 a.m. Hola, my name is Diego. I'm from Mexico City. There is a six-hour difference between Mexico and England, so when City plays at 12 p.m., I have to get up at 6 a.m., like this season's first game against West Ham. What's up, Blues? It's Jimmy from New York. Games here on the East Coast, Eastern Time, are typically between 7.30 a.m. and noon. A lot of games are at 9 or, or 10 a.m. I've been a City fan since 98. I first got to know about City from a PC game. Two years ago when they played Liverpool at the Etihad, I had to get up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday, but it was totally worth it because it was that beautiful 5-0 trashing. What got me into being a City fan was uh, Carlos Tevez, such an exciting player. Started following him in City in 2010 and I've yeah, been a fan ever since. So what I usually do, I go to bed early and set the alarm. But if I really, really don't want to miss the match, I would just stay up late and then come into work the next day late or just take the whole day off. I've been a football fan since 2014. I didn't like it before, I don't know why, but uh, one of the first teams that I started watching and started liking the way they played and the player was, of course, City. So I'm now a, a big fan, then, even more than my local team, Pumas, from Mexico City. Paying 300 bucks to see them in New Jersey on a, on a rainy night with you know, largely a reserves team. I mean, Riyad Mahrez was there, Leroy Sané, Bernardo Silva, uh, Bravo, Foden, and of course Pep, but that was the year where you know so many were at the World Cup. But I just I had to take my opportunity, and lately I've been looking at plane tickets to get over there this season into Manchester for my first ever game. It's Christine. I'm in Royal Palm Beach, Florida. How did I get started? You know, I've been watching football for many years. I was born in Jamaica and raised there. And if you know anything about Jamaica, uh, this sport is very popular there. But needless to say, Liverpool, Man U. You know, back in the days when Johnny Barnes was playing, Jamaicans would support Liverpool nonstop. Hi, my name is Jean-Pierre. I'm from Peru. 
I usually get up at 9am or 10am to watch City play in the Premier League. But there are some times I've got to get up at 6.30 in the morning to watch them play, like for example, against this opening game against West Ham. But then I just decided one day, I think it's about 2010, I'm going to pick a Premier League side. The sky blue tickled my fancy and Manchester is a um, parish from Jamaica, so I decided to go with Manchester. And what got me to be a City fan was basically Carlos Tevez. I was a big fan of him in like since the 2006 World Cup when I was five years old and then when he came to City in 2009 when I was eight I became a fan. Our earliest game starts at about 7.30 so I don't have to set my alarm because I'm an early riser anyway. I'm up every morning at five, go out and do my run and I'm back for my game. When there's like a Champions League game or a midweek game and it's coming on at three o'clock in the afternoon, 3.30, I will take time off from work, which means I'm using my PTO time. I can record a game, but there's some games I don't want to watch a recorded version. I got to see it live, so I take the time off from work. Hi, Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Shuttleworth, and I'm currently in Kampala, Uganda. You have to wait a bit longer, two or three hours ahead, so especially for the midweek games, Champions League games and so on. It's either getting up... Uh, like recording it and getting up the next morning or staying up late at night to watch which is what I usually do especially towards the end of a season. Hi my name's Jack Ferguson and I'm a city fan from Australia. I live in a city called Ballarat which is about an hour outside Melbourne and I don't think I've missed a city game for the last at least 10 years. Most Premier League games start around 2am to 4am, that's most weekends, so most Saturday nights I'm getting up at those sort of times, occasionally I think twice a season you get a game at about 9.30pm which is probably the best time to watch them. Champions League games are pretty good as well, 6.45am or 5.45am. So my story of watching the Blues varies from place to place, I've moved around a lot, starting by moving to the west coast of Canada where the half 12 kickoffs would begin at half past four in the morning. So I remember getting up many times to watch derby games and so on that were broadcast at that time. Hi, this is Mike from the Bolt from the Blue podcast here in Seoul, South Korea. We had Park Sung from Manchester United. He was flying the flag for British teams over here. And of course, when we went on TV to watch games, there was only Manchester United games. After he left, then the next thing was Son Heung-min, and of course Tottenham Hotspur became the team that uh, South Koreans love to watch. The most silly thing I've done for a game is probably travel over to the UK a couple of times to watch them play in Manchester. Uh, my auntie lives in London, and she signed up to be a Fulham member, and we ended up going to see Fulham City in the 2013-14 season at Craven Cottage. Moving around the world, living in Colombia and Brazil, the times on there was quite favourable, so after work I'd be able to watch a match at half past three in the evening matches and then obviously Saturday and Sunday. Changes the routine a little bit in terms of what I'm used to, um, being able to watch matches in the morning and having it be kind of a lunchtime thing rather than something that goes on into the evening. Manchester City fans were relegated to trolling around bars trying to see if they could get to see their team playing. It wasn't so bad when there was a three o'clock kickoff, of course, because we're eight or nine hours ahead. So that wasn't so bad. It would have been 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. Hi, my name is Mahmoud Salah. I'm from Egypt. I have not been a City fan for so long, I have to admit, but... 
What made me a city fan was actually when I was playing PS 13. It was like five to six years ago, and、uh, I noticed that crazy ass team. My biggest mad watching City moment was、uh, getting a text from my brother before the FA Cup semi-final a few years ago against Man United. Um, saying I've just got tickets, two tickets had popped up. So I was living in Brazil at the time, and、uh, he texted me. I think it was on the Thursday or Friday night, and so I literally packed a rucksack, got on the plane, arrived in London, got to Wembley in time for kickoff, watched the match, and then got back on a plane to go back to São Paulo where I was living. Since I'm an Egyptian, everyone is a Liverpool fan now. So I literally wander in streets for an hour at least to find just one place that actually plays the city game to watch it. <laughs> I'm always the only one who's cheering for City. Another thing that I don't want my church folks to hear, but. I go to church on Saturdays, right? And if I have a game on a Saturday, I pray at my bedside. Let's put it that way. Anyway, up the blues. Hope this works out. Love you guys. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. A look there at City's international fans.、Uh, it's time to finish with Ask the Panel. Send in your questions for next week. Tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us via the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. We're also on Instagram as well, so check out Blue Moon Podcast on there.、Uh, first up is Josh on Twitter, who asks the Canseo signing seems to be more than just succession planning for Walker. Do you think this could mean that we'll see City returning to experimenting with a back three this season, with Walker or perhaps Fernandinho used as the auxiliary right sided centre back?、Uh, yeah, I think. One of the questions that keeps coming up,、um, and you you asked it in the season, the opening podcast of the season, and it comes up whenever you read a preview of City season from anywhere. What do you expect from City? What is success for City this season? How does it get better? And the answer is, barring. Something unbelievable. The answer is not more trophies because it's very, very unlikely. It's very unlikely that we match last season's trophy haul. So th- the answer has to be a further evolution tactically, and development, an, yeah, and an improvement in style of play. If it, if it can be seen as such a thing, it's what Guardiola aims for. He's on record, I think, as saying, or it's certainly been said by those close to him, that what brought him to an end at Barcelona and Bayern Munich was not. The sense that he he couldn't win more trophies, or okay, the burnout thing I think was a factor at Barcelona, but actually it's that sense of completion. It's that no matter what I do next season, I cannot make this team more in my image. I can't make them better. This is where I want them to be. And if that doesn't include the Champions League trophy, fine, because we know how Guardiola feels about his style of play. And I think adding the tactical element, it's been there before the three at the back and the. The two wing backs, we've definitely seen it, but we've not. I don't think we've fully taken that on board, or I don't think he's fully committed to that as the city style of play. It's more an as and when it suits. I think we can get that as it, it can be more of a string in our bow. You know, it can be it can be something that we we come to use more and more often, and、uh, potentially Angelino contributes to that on the left. Cancelo or Cancelo definitely contributes to it on the right. We know that Walker can handle the that, the athleticism of that role,、um, and having somebody else who who gives him that option and pushes him, and knowing that Fernandinho can drop back because now we've got Rodri. There's a lot of pieces to this jigsaw that are there to slot into place, and now it's just knowing when and where to deploy it.、Um, but I 
I think you bet your life that that's going to be worked on in training. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, Tony? Because I remember there was a couple of times last season where Guardiola just went, "Ah, oh, we don't need a right back," <laughs> and then just so it like his mind obviously works differently to anybody else's. It does, and I think I think really I, I can only really encapsulate what Richard said. I think it's about evolution. I think it's um, some of the pe- people are not quite going to know what they're coming up against, and as fans who watch them week in week out. We're not going to know what we're going to see, and we're going to be surprised at times by formation and or uh, selection. But it's evolution, and it's more in the Guardiola toolbox, really. It makes a change to be surprised in a positive way at City, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're surprised by what you've seen. I can't believe they've sunk this low again. You know, but yeah, it's um, it's it's still for someone of my age. I, I still have this weird expectation that um, is this really happening? And uh, but yeah, the surprises are all good. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, David Taylor's been in touch on the emails to ask why were no City players included in FIFA's best awards? Surely Bernardo Silva or Sergio Aguero deserved a place in that list. Well, if I knew the answer to that, um, I, I absolutely don't know. It's baffling uh, for a team that um, dominate domestically, um, give it a good run in the Champions League, for players that go off and win things at international level. I simply don't know. I've got a theory. Let's hear it. Uh, I wonder if it might be in line with mine, but I'll let you go first. Well, my theory is that City are the biggest team mm-hmm. in the Premier League, so there's not one standout player because for the entire for the whole of the season, what you have is you know if, if Bernardo Silva doesn't step up one week, Aguero does, or Sterling does, or Sane does, or De Bruyne does. I... So there's no no at the end of the season, nobody goes well. You, you, I mean, you look at Chelsea, Hazard was fantastic. You look at, at Spurs, Kane was fantastic. You look at City, and you go, they were all fantastic. Yeah, I, I agree to a point. It's definitely harder to pick the absolute standout man. I think, given a full season of fitness, maybe you look at De Bruyne as that guy. He is sort of the poster boy for the team at his best, and he was in the uh, in the Centurion season. Um, I think Bernardo developed into that last season, but I think he's still, to a point, underappreciated. Um, not, not by City fans, just to be clear. Um, but I think maybe... Look at the odds for PFA Player of the Year, and he was further out than he should have been, which I think suggests that he's not quite accepted as being that very, very elite level player yet by maybe the wider footballing public, um, even though we know that he is. Um, he he should be nominated for that award, but um, at the risk of being a bit twee and making a really obvious point, if we are recognised as a better team than our individual standing out, I'm fine with that because football's a team sport and I'm not... I'd like the players to get the recognition, but their manager knows how good they are and we know how good they are. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm sure they're not so modest that they don't know what they're doing as well. Like, personal recognition is great, but they're part of probably the best teams ever played football in England. And I bet they take that accolade more than they take being nominated for World Player of the Year. And I think David's point, actually, just, just thinking about that, about the perhaps there isn't a standout player. If you take as one of the absolute virtues of the, the City team, is their interchangeability, then why would anyone stand out? The whole thing... Because they can all do the different jobs. The whole jobs. thing is about the team. So, so maybe there's something in that. And finally, Kira Murray sent us a letter. Bernardo Silva said voting on City's captain will happen on Monday. Who would the panel choose? Um, I'm going to bow to my dad because I think we're going to give an identical answer here. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to let dad go first to give it so oh, I don't okay. steal it from oh, him. Okay, I, th- I think I've got a head and a heart. Answer. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll let you. I'll let everybody have a head and a heart answer. Yeah. That, yeah. If I was going to go with my heart, then I can't see beyond David Silva, just because the man's um, completing one of the most sensational periods in English domestic football. 
um, all-round good guy, etc. If speaking with my head, actually, Pierre De Bruyne, I think uh, the man has got the absolute vision. His positioning the team, his physical positioning the team gives him that pitch side view, and he has a footballing brain, footballing vision that's almost almost incomparable. Richard, this is the point where you tell me that's exactly what you would have said. Genuinely. Um, I think if you'd have asked me two weeks ago that question and I'd have told you that I'd be joining the riots on the streets of Stockport if it wasn't given to David Silver for his last season. But um, now, with a slightly less emotional head on it, um, and I'm not going to wax lyrical about David Silver now because I'm sure we're going to spend the season doing that. And It's going to happen in future yeah, episodes. Don't there'll, we? Yeah. there'll be plenty of time, but we all know what that guy is to City and we know what he is to City fans and we know what he is to, to those players. I think the I think he's revered. I think he's a lead-by-example kind of player. Um, so he would be a fine captain. Um, and so I'd be happy if, if Hart wins out on this decision. Um, but really... Just to steal my own point, De Bruyne is the poster boy of that team. He's, you look at positionally, he he gets deep, and Silver does this too. But De Bruyne gets deep. He drives up front. Is his vision of the whole pitch, his um, ability, and at times desire to shout and rally everyone around him. Um, he's a lead by example and uh, vocal leader as well in that team. He strikes me very much as Guardiola's man on the pitch. He is a tactician on the pitch. Um, and so, and and he speaks very well off the pitch as well. So you know, in those those more difficult moments in the season, you're probably not going to see David Silva giving the the rallying call to the fans before or before a big game or um, grouping everybody together in the same way after a moment like the Tottenham game last season. You look at somebody vocal who's going to be the voice in the dressing room and then the face of it to the media who's going to front up. It's probably De Bruyne. And I think if you take the captain in the traditional role probably touch more what I'd vote for. Uh, and a fit Kevin De Bruyne probably plays more game time than David Silva. Fair shout. Yeah. yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad to say that that's three of us in agreement with exactly <laughs> the same answers. So uh, there we go. Right, so that's it for this week's show, but we'll be back next week to review the Premier League opener at West Ham and look ahead to that Saturday evening clash with Tottenham. If you'd like to hear a little bit more podcasts, then you can sign up to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And for just $2 a month, you can get an extra 10 minutes of the show. This week is all about penalties. And you'll also get blogs by myself and Richard throughout the season. We've not actually started properly yet, but we'll, we promise we'll get onto it very soon. Um, also this season, for $10 a month backers we'll be putting you on the list of guests to be on that bonus show so uh, go and get signed up to that special thanks to this week's guest Richard Burns absolute pleasure David thank you and his father Tony yep same pleasure thoroughly enjoying myself thanks so much David I've been David Mooney we'll see you in seven days time the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast